Well, good morning again. Finally, at the very end of this series on Mark. It's been a while. It's a slow boat through Mark. But it's been awesome. I've loved it. Hopefully you've loved it. Um, last week I introduced a controversy. It's a controversy that has existed for thousands of years, and it's the controversy that surrounds the ending of the book of Mark. Now, every Bible notes, just about every Bible notes, three different endings to the gospel of Mark. And so open up your Bibles to the end of Mark. You might see that there are three different endings noted. First, there's the longer ending, verses 9 through 20. And I have the English Standard Version, the ESV, and in that, there's brackets. In the brackets, it says, right before verse 9 begins, it says, Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So there's that longer ending. Then there's a shorter ending. The shorter ending in my ESV is found in the footnotes at the bottom. And then the third possibility for the way that the book ends is that Mark stopped writing at verse 8. And that's where I went last week. That's how I said Mark actually ended last week. He stopped with verse 8. Anything after verse 8 was not written by Mark, but somebody else. It's a, a later edition, and so we should not consider verses 9 through 20 as the word of God. Now, that being said, the controversial nature of this ending, verses 9 through 20, should absolutely make us ask some questions, some difficult questions. Why is it there? What is it doing in our Bibles? If it's in our Bibles and it isn't the Word of God, what else is in our Bibles that isn't the Word of God? Can our Bibles be trusted? Is my Bible wrong? Good questions, hard questions. In fact, uh, a lot of secular critics use these kinds of questions to try to dismantle our belief system in the, in the veracity, the inerrancy, the truth of the Word of God, that it actually came from God. And so this is under attack tremendously, and the ending of Mark is... Just one example of what they use to, to foist this upon us. So today we're going to deal with this question, is my Bible wrong? So it's going to be, this sermon is going to be a little bit different than any sermon I've preached here before. This is far more of a historical account. We're going to go through facts, there's dates, uh, and, and there's not going to be any exposition. I'm not going to be taking these verses and expounding them and highlighting them and showing you what they mean because I'm not going to treat this as the Word of God. I'm going to treat this as something of a historical commentary. So it's my purpose to show you that the Bibles we hold in our hands today can absolutely be trusted as the Word of God. And I will show you this in two ways. No council has put this together, these 66 books and the books of the New Testament. There's a common misconception that at the Council of Nicaea, they canonized the Bible. That's a misconception. That didn't happen. There was never a council that we are aware of that canonized this book. But these books, the, the things, the, 
the books and letters that make up the New Testament, self-authenticated, proved themselves to be Scripture by the very power that's inherent in them. So I want to show you how we can see that by even verses 9 through 20. And then I want to show you how God has 100% preserved His Word throughout time. That the, the exact words that Mark wrote down and the other writers are known to us today. And God has preserved this through the millennia. So I want to show you those things and how verses 9, to, 9 through 20 that are not written by Mark help us know that this word is true and accurate. It's amazing. So before I develop those thoughts, let's read this controversial ending. Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. If they appear in your Bible, some Bibles they don't appear. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had, had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the, world, uh, to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So certainly there's a couple strange things in that passage. That you can handle snakes and drink poison to accompany the gospel. Drinking poison. Are we supposed to be drinking poison to prove that the gospel is real? I bet you that all of those who have tried it are not here to tell us how that went. Maybe not all. I don't know. So should we who proclaim the gospel be just as passionate about signs that accompany that gospel we are proclaiming? There's a number of churches tucked away in Appalachia who believe that. And in their churches, on the stage, they handle snakes, poisonous snakes, and they drink poison. In 2014, a pastor of one of these churches was bitten by a poisonous snake. They called the ambulance. They came. They saw that he was, his body was going into shock, but he refused to receive treatment because he was convinced that by faith he'd be all right. So he died a little while after that. 
So we have in the ending of Mark, in this additional ending of Mark, are some strange things that can be blown out of proportion. And as a result, there are dangers there. And so I think it's very important for us to understand the nature of this longer ending. What it is, why it's there, and, and why I think, at least, that it's not gospel. And, and I don't just think this. I'm standing on the shoulders of so many more way smarter than me, who have shown me what they believe. And I'm just telling you what what I have come to understand. So I do not believe this ending to be gospel, to be the word of God, but I do believe that there's a specific purpose as to why God has kept this additional ending around for so long. I will reject them as the word of God, but believe in their purpose. So I want to walk through why I think they've been kept around for so long. And, you know, maybe before we take this historical tour, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we look through history and look at different scriptures and consider these words in verses 9 through 20. Lord, would you guide us and keep us from error? May we not be proud. May I not be proud in, in what I believe. But God, would you give us your mind and your spirit and humility that we can approach your word and the words found in the Bible and truth. I pray that today at the end of this message, every one of us would feel a stronger conviction of how well you have delivered your word to us. You have done, you do all things well and you have Preserve your word well through time, and we are so thankful. Our lives hang on these words, and we are so thankful. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's talk about how this scripture has been preserved. Because if the ending of Mark is up for debate, what else is up for debate in in the Bible? Especially concerning the New Testament. How can we actually know that it was written by the people who, who we think it was written by? How do we know that it wasn't spoiled by errors or additions or omissions? How can we know these things? We know it's, it's what was actually written. Because we don't have any single copy or any single original manuscript that the authors of the New Testament put on paper. The writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, and, and all the others, we don't have the original writings. All we have are copies. So if God wanted to preserve his word, why wouldn't he have left us those original copies? Wouldn't there be no doubt at that point what was actually written if we had the originals? Well, obviously not. Obviously he didn't think that. And I think he didn't leave us the original manuscripts because we fallen humans have a tendency to take these kinds of things and make them into relics and worship them. We take cups and bones and shrouds and enshrine them and go by the millions to worship before them as if these objects possess some holy attributes. And so if we had these original manuscripts, it would be the same way. And I think God gave us a mercy by allowing these to be lost to time so that we wouldn't worship the letters and the pages, but would worship the one who put the words there, would worship the one behind the meaning of the words. 
But despite the fact that, that these are lost to time, I think God has well preserved what those original words were. More than any other ancient work, any other manuscript. And so here I want to define manuscript. What, manuscript simply means something that's been handwritten. And so when I'm talking about these ancient manuscripts, I'm talking about copies of the original manuscripts written by the authors or copies of copies, sometimes copies of copies of copies of copies. Either way, when I'm talking about manuscripts, that's what I'm talking about, handwritten copies of something. Now, all of the manuscripts that we possess today come from before the 1200s, from before 1200. The printing press was invented in about 1450, so everything prior to that is a manuscript, a handwritten document, a copy. So we can see that a few of our manuscripts today were very possibly written, uh, were very possibly copies of the original writings, which is incredible to consider. We can go so close to the origin, as close as you can get, just about. But most of the manuscripts, as I've said, are copies of copies of copies of copies and so on. So that means that there were these scribes handwriting all of, all of these things throughout, throughout the millennia, but these scribes did not take their job lightly. They're not just copying for the, for the arbitrary sake of copying. They know that what they are doing is preserving the word of God throughout the generations, and so they take their job exceedingly seriously. Most of the scribes are professional scribes. This is what they do with their lives. And so what they copy is meticulously done, and then often it was proofread by other scholars to make sure that what was copied was true to the original, whatever, what, whatever was that they were copying from. There's a story of this one monastic group that was engaged in such copying work, and they would write a letter down, and then they would go and bathe. They'd come back to the manuscript, they'd write another letter down, and then they would go and bathe. And they would do this again and again until the entire work was completed. That's crazy. But it gives you a sense of how important they understood their work to be. How carefully they approached copying the scripture. Now, by this kind of meticulous work, of scribes throughout the ages. Today, we have more than 25,000 manuscripts, copies of the originals. 25,000. Some of these are fragments. Some of these are full books. They're written on papyrus, cloth, paper, all kinds of different things. They're in scrolls. They're in codexes. This is a codex. It's bound together. They're written in Greek and Latin and a whole bunch of other languages spread throughout all the Mediterranean world. 25,000 manuscripts. Now, the curse of having 25,000 manuscripts is that it's going to be rife with errors. Despite the best efforts of scribes, errors are going to creep in. Mis misspelled words a phrase reversed, something that's been omitted or added, and then throughout time those mistakes can compound. But the overwhelming blessing of having 25,000 manuscripts is that you can take any one single work, it's redundant, and compare it 
to 25,000 copies. You take one error, potentially, one, one questionable spot, and compare it to a host of other things, and as a result, you can easily see where the mistakes have come into play. And this is the science of textual criticism. The whole science devoted to this, whole scholarship. And this is what they spend their lives doing. And so they've developed a way where they can precisely determine where errors have entered our Bible, about what time frame, probably by who. It's amazing. And so there are scholars that say today that we can know with 99.99% accuracy that what we hold in our hands today is just as it was originally written. And those places that remain questionable are clearly noted for us. So we know when we approach it. No other ancient work even comes close to this kind of accuracy. In all of the 25,000 manuscripts that we have, they are written between the years 100 AD, if not a little earlier, and 1200 AD. And I want to show you a few of these notable examples. The first is Papyrus 52. It's about the size of a postage card. It contains a fragment of the Gospel of, of John. This is the oldest known New Testament fragment. It can be dated between the years 100 and 150. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, died in the 90s. So at the earliest, this comes 10 years after John's life. John's life. This is as close to the original as we have. This could be a copy of John's handwriting. It's amazing. Another one is the Bodmer Papyri. This is the earliest existing Gospel of John, complete Gospel of John. This dates between 175 and 200 AD. That's within 100 years of John's life. For ancient works, that is incredibly close. Then we have two more, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. You can see the dates. No, you can't. Codex Vaticanus comes from 300 to 325. Codex, Codex Sinaiticus comes from 330 to 360 in those time frames. These contain the oldest, new fully compiled New Testaments that we have. As a note, as it says up there, both of them end Mark at 16.8. These are the oldest New Testaments. Now let's just say that none of these manuscripts existed None of these ancient works were here for us to look at. We have another source through history, and it's amazing. So let's consider the earliest Christian theologians, the church fathers, before the year 1313 when, when Christianity was legalized in Rome. Prior to that, they were persecuted for being Christian. So in those years of darkness, before 1313, these church fathers, these early Christian theologians were writing one another letters. They were writing books. They were writing essays about what they were learning in Scripture, expounding the theology of it, writing still what we regard today as tremendous theological works. In all of their works, they're quoting Scripture. 
It's rife with scriptural quotations. We have more than 32,000 different quotations from the New Testament coming out of the letters, essays, and books that these early church fathers have written. From these 32,000 quotations, on these quotations alone, we can perfectly reconstruct the New Testament. God has preserved his word with tremendous accuracy, with a multitude of sources. Now, I want to compare this to other ancient works because it highlights just how well he has done this, how well the Holy Spirit has preserved his word. So after the New Testament, no other ancient work is supported with as many manuscripts, but the one that comes next is Homer's Iliad. There are 643 existing manuscripts for Homer's Iliad compared to 25,000. That's peanuts. The earliest copy of the Iliad comes from the 10th century. Homer was writing in the 700s B.C. That's 1,700 years of separation between when Homer wrote the Iliad and when we find our first evidences of it in manuscripts compared with 10 to 100 years for the New Testament. How about Julius Caesar's famous Gallic Wars? Julius Caesar wrote in the first century. There are 10 manuscripts that exist of it today, all of them coming in or after the 11th century. 1,000 years of separation from when Julius Caesar penned it to when we have manuscripts of it. So both the Iliad and the Gallic Wars are accepted by modern scholarship as accurate. No one's questioning that, at least not with incredible veracity. And yet they do with the word. But look at how well God has preserved it with the glut of manuscripts and the multitude of sources preserved throughout time so that we would know without a shadow of a doubt what these original writers put down on paper or papyrus. And I've spent all of this time really coming through just a tiny bit of history to assure us that what we have is well-preserved. That the question of the ending of Mark will not throw us off of balance on how well it's been preserved because there seems to be a scribal addition with the end of Mark. That's still in our Bibles today. You might call it an error. Like I said before, we know when the errors are there. Certainly the section is old, verses 9 through 20. It's really old, actually. It's one reason it's still in our Bibles is because of how old it is. Around the year 155, Justin Martyr quotes the longer ending. In about 180, Irenaeus quotes the longer ending, both early Christian theologians. And with their quotations, with a few other sources that we have, we can date this longer ending coming from the year, between the years 100 and 140. So it was probably, it, it existed for sure within those years, probably penned in those years, one generation away from the apostles. But how do we know it didn't go back further? How do we know it wasn't written by Mark? Did he write it? Did Mark write 9 through 20? And the answer is 100%, without a doubt, no. Mark did not write 9 through 20. 
And there are three major proofs. Like I was referring to earlier, the oldest manuscripts. Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, both end Mark at 16.8, as I have said. But Mark 16.9 through 20 existed in older manuscripts. But in every one of those older manuscripts that we have today, it is noted as a superfluous addition, as something that was put on later. Scribes were clear to make note that it is an addition. The second reason we have, or the second evidence we have Mark didn't write 9 through 20 is by the early external writings of the church fathers. So early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria and Origen, who were alive in the second century, do not know anything of an, of an ending beyond Mark 16.8 in their extensive writings. These two men are huge in developing church theology. And they know nothing after 16.8. Eusebius and Jerome were both aware of a longer ending. They came a little bit later. They're both aware of a longer ending at the end of Mark, but they say that it's absent from most of the Greek manuscripts that they are aware of. So it's in just a select few. And then the third and most condemning evidence that we have that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20 come from within verses 9 through 20, from the internal evidence. First, look at verse 19. How is Jesus referred to? Jesus, Lord, or Lord Jesus. That's the first time Mark would have used that phrase. Mark has been so intentional about calling him by his earthly name, by Jesus or Jesus of Nazareth. He hasn't deified him in his narrative. Yes, others have confessed Jesus as something else, but Mark, when he's narrating, only refers to him as Jesus or Jesus of Nazareth. And so here at the end, he's given a new title. It's odd. In verses 9 through 20, in 12 verses, there are 18 brand new words that have not previously existed in the book of Mark. That's pretty odd. Mark's theme of faith, not coming from miracles, which we have seen over and over again, is suddenly contradicted. And now faith and miracles are coming together. Speaking in tongues, casting out demons, getting bitten by snakes, drinking poison, healing. Where did that theme go, Mark? Finally, Mary Magdalene. She's prominent in the, in the burial narrative. She's mentioned three different times, and yet in verse 9, she's introduced at the end of the story. It doesn't make any sense. So whoever penned the ending of the book of Mark apparently made no attempt to cohere to the storyline, Mark's style of writing, his theology, his language based on internal evidence alone, we can see that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20. Somebody else wrote them. Why are they in our Bibles? Why did anybody write it 
at all? And how did it, why did it stick around for 1,900 years? Well, as I said last week, when you stop at verse 8, Mark 16, 8, you're only left with questions, and questions create problems. There's no resolution. There's no conclusion. Did the women really just run away in fear, and that's it? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? There's no proof. Where is the victory of the story if we stop at 16.8? You're left with these burning questions, a desire for conclusion. And in the ancient mind especially, this is unacceptable. There is almost no ancient work from the Greeks, from the Latins, that have a story that does not conclude. That's really a construct of the modern era to leave a story with open questions at the end. So this in the ancient mind is unacceptable to end it this way. Now, it's so unheard of to end an ancient writing with questions that there is these pervasive theories that say Mark was taken away from his writing. You know, Peter was the source for Mark. That's where Mark was getting his information from Peter. We know that, that Peter was executed at the hands of Nero. So maybe Mark lost his source. Perhaps Mark himself was executed or imprisoned and he could no longer write. You know, we don't know. It's just, it's theories. But we do know that God knew what he was doing. We do know that God has planned for us to receive Mark in the way that we have it today. Either way, the church fathers, whose names history has not recorded, they apparently thought that the ending of Mark was too abruptly unsatisfying, and so they decided they would add an ending. They would bring conclusion to it. They would bring resolution to it. And I think primarily why they did that is because they didn't have this. These are called... They didn't have a Bible like we have a Bible. These are called books of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the rest are called books of the Bible because they were different books at one time. They were in separate places. It was very unlikely that a single person or a single church would have all of them. So it was very possible that somebody could have just possessed the gospel of Mark and not have the other gospels. And so the the additional ending was added so that they would know how it concluded and what happened with Jesus, what happened with the disciples. Now we have the nice, neat, clean Bible with everything bound together and we can flip from gospel to gospel to compare, but they didn't have it then. So we need to think of the ending of the Gospel of Mark, not as Scripture, but more like commentary of Scripture, like we often have in the bottoms, at the bottom of our pages in our Bibles, commentary on Scripture. That's what this ending in Mark is. That's why it was originally written, a commentary on what happened after the resurrection. And I say that it's a commentary, and this is the amazing part. This is the amazing part. It's a commentary because Mark 16, 9 through 20 is a collage of New Testament writings, excerpts from all kinds of New Testament books. And so I have a graph that should pop up, hopefully. Right, Devin, what do you say? Yeah, 
I'm not going to go through all of these, but here is what's in Mark and how it corresponds to the other Gospels and Acts. These are direct, direct references of the other Gospels that we find in the additional ending of Mark. And there are plenty of indirect references as well, and I have those listed at the bottom. So we can see that we have all of these New Testament books as a collage in the additional ending of Mark. And again, this, this comes, the, the additional ending comes from within one generation of the apostles. So do you know what that means? That means that from the very earliest days of the church, they understood what Scripture was. They understood what was the Word of God. We have this idea that there was a council or an institution that canonized the Bible, but there's nothing, like I said, there's nothing, no one who has decided that, nobody who tells us what the Bible is based off of their own motivations or, or the interests of their institution, nothing like that. These are divinely inspired words by the Holy Spirit, and the earliest church knew what was Scripture by the power found in Scripture. This is self-authentication of the Word. This shows us that the Word we have now, that we is self-authenticating in us was self-authenticating in them from within 10 years of the apostles' lives. Oh, even closer, listen to this quote by Peter from 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, for sure, Paul, or Peter, uh, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do in other scriptures. Do you see what Peter's implying there? If Paul, Paul's writing is being equated with other scriptures, Peter is saying that what Paul is writing is scripture, is the word of God, is divinely inspired. No man contrives this, what is going to be scripture. God decides what is going to be scripture as he gives it by his spirit. So we know that within one generation of the, of the Gospels, we know that in the, law, in, the, in the time that these scriptures were being written, it was being self-authenticated. Self-authenticated. The power, there's power in the words. That's what self-authentication means. Scripture has power. It changes you. It opens your eyes to reality. It shows you who you are, what's inside your heart. It shows you the living God and who he is and what he has done for you on your behalf how he has created you, that you are facing a judgment that is coming. Scripture shows you these things with the intention of changing you, of exerting force on you, of moving you in some direction. Hebrews 4 verses, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, to joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
That is the power of Scripture that exerts on you. This is not a collection of some ancient, dusty, old writings. This is living and active, in motion, exerting force on every reader of the Bible. So you're not meant to relate to this alone. This isn't... This is something that's just supposed to be an encouragement, like a nice daily devotional in the morning. This is something that is supposed to change the very way that you live. This is something that's supposed to change your reality, this Word of God. And that's what self-authentication means. It has power. From the earliest days of the church, even the days of Peter, we know that the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, Jude, the rest, are Scripture, are God-breathed, exerted force, from the very beginning, and no council got together to tell us that this is the Bible. God revealed that through his self-authenticating word. And verses 9 through 20 of Mark show us that that is true in the very earliest days of the church. That is why I believe verses 9 through 20 are in our Bibles today, to further affirm that this is the word of God now in the same way that it was the word of God in 100 A.D. So as we've seen, the Spirit has tremendously preserved His word. So is my Bible wrong? No. Your Bible is not wrong. Your Bible contains the same scripture that God breathed through the original writers those distant millennia ago. Yes, the, addition, the, the ending of Mark is an addition, but it was never meant to be taken as scripture, but merely a commentation on how the story of Christ resolved in resurrection for those people who didn't have that story with them. Today, it builds our confidence in the accuracy, in the veracity, in the self-authenticating factors of God's Word. The Spirit preserved it. The Word self-authenticates today as it did eons ago. We can trust in this with our whole lives. Some might call it an error, but we know that this ending of Mark is a proof to the veracity of the Word of God. So let us not be afraid of a controversial ending, but let us see that a controversial ending is in fact given to us by God through the millennia, not as scripture, but as proof of his scripture being perfectly preserved. And so we conclude, Mark, thanks for sticking with me. Next week, we're going to begin a new series on the vision statement of the church, so all people know joy in God, so all people will know joy in God. 
And we're going to kind of break that apart into five weeks and, and talk about the different elements in that vision statement, why they are important, why we put them in the vision statement, and, and sort of what are these components all about. And on top of that, you have the tremendous privilege of listening to someone other than me. So next week, you're going to hear from our elder, Russell Wilday. He will be preaching on God, so all people know joy in God. He's going to tackle a big one. The week after that, you will hear from Josiah Stevens. He's going to talk about all people, so all people know joy in God. And then I'll take the third week to talk about joy. And then the remaining two weeks, we're going to talk about how we're going to do this as a church. So all people know joy in God. That's where we're going with the next five weeks. Uh, Why don't we just take a moment to pray, and especially pray over what's coming next from the Word. Father, I thank you that you are so faithful in preserving your Word, that you are passionate about your Word. You've given it to us that we might know you and be changed by you and drawn into you. And be filled by your spirit to know joy. I thank you that even these errors that you you have allowed to remain in the Bible are just a further proof to us that we can trust your word. You are wise. Father, we lift up the next few weeks of preaching and pray that you would Light a fire in this church and fill our hearts with passion for you, for reaching all people. Fill us with joy as we do these things, that we might be fully caught up in your work so that all people will know joy in you. This is what you have called us to. And Lord, I pray that you would give authority and power and wisdom to Russ, to Josiah, as they preach in the next two weeks. And we pray, I pray, that we all would receive your word through these men that you have appointed. I thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.